If the surgery worked, then you will regain the use of your leg. If the cancer has spread, then you will experience symptoms. If the plant is alive, then it will put out leaves this spring. If, then. We use these types of phrases all the time to indicate that if something is true or if it comes to pass, then something else naturally follows. If, then. And Paul has spent the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, something like the last five of our sermons, five of the six, telling these Colossians what is true. What is true about Jesus? What is true about his deity? What is true about his work? And what is true about them if they are in Christ? And now Paul is making a connection here in Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If you have been raised, then. You see, Paul was writing this letter to a church of Christians a class he had never met, but he'd heard about them from other Christians. He wanted to encourage them, express his thankfulness for God's work in them, and instruct them regarding the danger of certain false teaching. We don't know what exactly. To do these things, Paul saw it as necessary that these Christians know that if something was true of them, then certain things would follow. Why? Why does Paul feel the need to point out to these Christians that if something is true of them, then a certain something will follow? Why does this help in the face of false teaching of any variety? Well, it's because Paul knows what these Colossians and what we need to understand is that the gospel of Christ transforms people. The things we believe change us and lead to lives that are different, transformed. And our task today is to look at and understand how what God has done for us goes hand in hand with the actions, the life, the fruit that flows out of what he has done. We need this to keep us from becoming a fruitless people, a people relying on man-made religion and the appearance of wisdom, which are of no worth in God's eyes. So please pray with me. Lord, we need your help today. Lord, we know that uh, we like to think of ourselves as people who can uh, give ourselves what we need, get what we want, do what we need on our own, and make ourselves happy. And we, Lord, we know none of that's true. We need you, we need Christ, we need the work of your Holy Spirit coming and changing us, raising us with Christ setting our our feet on the path of righteousness and our eyes fixed on heaven where Christ, our eternal Savior, our goal, uh, lives and waits for us. Lord, help us today. Send your spirit to change our minds and our hearts, causing us to treasure and value Jesus and the work he's done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you aren't already there, please turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 1 through 11. And follow along as we consider this portion of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Now remember, Paul is writing to these Christians to help them make the connection between the foundational gospel truths about Christ that they believe and the lives that come from those truths being true. If, then. Now Paul's concern for these Christians and our concern today as a people of Christ is to realize that something is true of us and propels us, motivates us, strengthens us towards a certain kind of life. It isn't the life of useless human religious regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, that Paul just got done in the previous chapter telling his readers is useless, worthless, powerless to purify us, uh, make us acceptable to God. 
But that still leaves us with the question, what then does the life we're to lead look like? How are we to live it? What life does have the value and the worth and the fruitfulness to be called walking in Christ Jesus the Lord? And that's the very question that Paul answers starting with verse one in chapter three. That's our first point. People in Christ bear righteous fruit when God raises them with Christ. People in Christ bear righteous fruit when God raises them with Christ. You see what we have in this passage right from the start? The phrase, if then you have been raised with. Have been raised with. That's a, the, 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 you know, the word behind that, the Greek word, uh, in that particular tense means two things. One, it's talking about something that's been done, completed, finished. Not being raised with, not in the process of being raised with, but done. Completely raised with Christ. And two, that Greek word in that tense means it's something that's been done to the one being raised, not something they do for themselves. So when we talk about Christians bearing fruit, living lives of fruitfulness that correspond to being rooted in Christ, there's a big caveat. And that caveat is that no amount of human effort, our own effort, is ultimately responsible for the fruit that we produce. God chooses the gardens. God tears out the weeds. God plants. God waters. God causes good plants to grow. And God causes the fruit to appear on the vine. So... What does this mean for the Colossians that Paul was writing to? (coughs) Excuse me. Well, it was and is a reminder of two very important things. One, God gets the credit. They and we don't. God in Jesus is responsible for raising dead sinners to life. The Colossian church and we don't get any credit. Uh, So when I'm looking at my fruit, looking at my life and And whatever good work I may have done or be doing, this passage is meant to keep me humble. Any good thing I've done depends on Christ, who raised me with himself from the dead. I was not good until he made me good, and he gets all the credit for it. Up until then, all my fruit was poisonous and rotten and self-serving until he planted a new heart in me. The second thing, the second thing that this does is this, this is a reminder that God is the one God is the one responsible for raising dead sinners to life with Jesus. And that was meant to give these Christians and us great confidence. Because if God raises sinners with Jesus from the dead, they are raised with Jesus. Just as surely as Christ was the firstborn from the dead, those who are in him are raised from the death, from death. So they and we can live lives of fruitfulness because we know that in Christ we will someday reach all the riches of full assurance. Have been raised with Jesus. This is the short little bit at the beginning. It creates a humble confidence. We don't get the credit for the work, but we can be absolutely sure that it has been done by a good and gracious God through our loving Savior, Jesus. So let me, let me give a concrete example how this, how this looks, how this affects us, how it affects me. Oh, so... When, when, let's say, when I'm upset with my wife, and it's usually because of selfishness or pride on my own part, I, I often sin against her, uh, either with harsh, unkind words or cold, selfish, unloving withdrawal. When I do, and then later apologize and ask for forgiveness, the apologizing and asking for forgiveness happens not because I'm a good person and a good husband who possesses the key to achieving marital happiness, 
I'm not, and I don't. Uh, it happens because Christ has done a work in me that gives me a heart that wants to reflect him in how I treat my wife. See, on my own, I'd happily continue the conflict, pursue my own way, and do what it takes to get what I want, get the treatment that makes me happy. But because of what Jesus has done, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want him to get the credit for it, not me. So I confess my own sin as sin to my wife, not a failing, not a lapse of judgment, not a weakness, not a behavior that she made me do, but as sin. Because what I did and felt came from the parts of me that Jesus is still working on, but they don't define me. I take responsibility for my sin because that's what I own, and I give Jesus responsibility for my repentance. Because I am confident that whatever the response I get, he has forgiven me and empowered me to make progress in my fight against sin. Realizing that, realizing that my natural inclination is a path of selfishness and death, and only Christ's work gives me the tools and the heart to walk the path of life, it's both encouraging and humbling. Uh, None of us gets ultimate credit for the fruit we bear because God raises us for Jesus. We don't raise ourselves. There's several several things we need to think about that come out of this. You could call them practical applications. Uh, First, understand that if you can be raised with Christ, you can also be not raised with Christ. So knowing which one we are is important. It's not safe for us to assume we're raised with Christ because we prayed a prayer once or because my parents raised me in a Christian family or because I belong to a good church or because I'm behaving like a good moral person. We should regularly ask ourselves, am I trusting in Jesus now? Am I looking to his work on the cross for me now? Am I bearing the fruit of a life rooted in Jesus? And second, knowing that God raises us, we don't raise ourselves, means that I, I need to be humble when it comes to, the other, to other people and judging whether or not I think they're raised. I need to be humble in how I relate to those I think might not be saved because they're right where I was before God raised me. I need to be humble about my status as someone who's been raised because God raised me in spite of myself, not because of myself. Uh, And I need to be humble about judging other Christians because God does not give us the vision into other hard people's hearts to know who is raised and who is not. So I need to approach other professing Christians' sins and failings gently and humbly, not harshly and judgmentally. And I do all this because people in Christ bear righteous fruit when God raises them with Christ. And second, people in Christ bear righteous fruit by basking in the sun. By basking in the sun. You see what comes right after Paul's conditional, if then, if you have been raised with Christ, then do something, right? If you have been raised, then something will follow that you do. Uh, The thing that follows uh, that you do, it doesn't raise you, but it flows out of being raised with Christ as naturally as zucchini comes out of a zucchini plant, right? What is it that Paul sees is so naturally flowing out of being raised in Christ? Well, it's seeking the things that are above, where Christ is. It's setting our minds on, staring with fixed longing on where our true life is, hidden with Christ. Uh, this being raised naturally means, uh, or naturally ends up meaning not setting our minds on the things of our old life, but setting our minds, our attention, our thoughts on the things of our new life. 
So imagine with me, you're playing Monopoly. To win, you need to acquire Monopoly money and Monopoly property, right? Uh, but what happens when the game ends and you go back to real life? When it comes to measuring value, worth, prosperity, would you still think in terms of Monopoly money? Uh, or would you need a new measure of value? Wouldn't you need to, to exist in, in your new life, in real life? It, it isn't really possible to support your new real life with the monopoly currency of your old life. Uh, the same transformation, the same switch in what we value, in what brings us happiness, in what we treasure, happens to one who has been raised in Christ. The place that had everything we used to value, where we used to find worth, uh, what we used to love, what used to bring us happiness, all that's part of our old life. It's dead now. We've been raised to a new life where everything of value is now found in a person. And that person, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of God. In him are all the riches that we need for this new life and the new life to come. And do you see in the passage what Paul says about that new life being hidden with Christ? He's, not, he's, he's pointing out not only that Christ has it, that it's hidden in Christ the way that money is safely hidden in the bank, but he's also pointing out to his readers that it may not be obvious now that we have all these riches, this new life. They're hidden because it's all waiting for us with Christ in heaven, and we're still here on earth. The monopoly game is ongoing. Uh, it's not until Christ appears that he comes again to earth will we truly and fully and completely see the new life, the inheritance, the heavenly fortune that is ours. See, we're like children currently living in, in an orphanage where wealth is counted in dirty scraps of clothes and broken toys. But we have the promise of a new life of wealthy, loving parents who have adopted us and in good time will come to take us to live with them and share all the wealth and prosperity that is theirs. Our adoptive parents might send us things to support us during that time in the orphanage, but what gets us through living in a broken, dead world is knowing that a home that we are going to awaits us with a loving father and a loving brother who owns not just a nice middle-class home and a steady income in America, but the whole universe, a God who has made all things, who sustains all things, in whom all joy and happiness is found, and who loves us, who gave his son up to death for us and wants to bring us to experience the greatest joy that is possible in all the universe, knowing and being in a loving relationship with him. So what is your mind set on? What are your eyes fixed on? Are they fixed on the picture of Christ as painted so richly in his word in the lives of his people? Am I seeking to meet with him in prayer? Am I seeking to be with him and be those uh, like those in my life I see who are modeling the life of Christ? If Christ has changed my heart from a dead heart of stone to a living heart of flesh, if God has raised me from being a dead, helpless corpse to a living, breathing son, if the Holy Spirit has turned my stony, rocky, rebellious ground into a fertile garden bearing the fruit of righteousness, what should my eyes be fixed on? The question's not just rhetorical. 
Jesus, right? It's not just that. Asking this question of myself can help me, help all of us think about the most important question of all, am I in Jesus? Am I raised with him? If I have no desire to set my mind on him, if I find no value in being with him and knowing him, if I have no desire for a life with him, if I find myself satisfied instead with all this world has to offer, then I can have no confidence that I've been raised with him. And and I hope, I hope that all of us here today in Christ can answer that question of whether our minds are set on Jesus with a confident yes. But still, I need to ask myself what other things are competing for the attention of my mind and heart. What other things am I tempted to set my mind on? A good hint is what I set my eyes on, what I look at a lot. Are my eyes fixed on things God has forbidden me? like pornography or gossip about others that destroys their reputations, then I I need to tear my eyes away from those things. Ask God to give my heart a desire to look at and love Jesus and a heart that hates the breaking of God's good laws, that loves his laws and wants to keep those laws out of love. Maybe, maybe my mind is set on what could be a good gift, but my gaze is so steady, so fixed on that object of my attention, of my affection, it turns into an idol. So are my eyes fixed on my phone, on social media, on video games, on my career, my hobbies, my bank account, my kids? Then I need to ask God to temper my affection for those good gifts, put them in their place, help me see that compared to Jesus, they're just gifts. Not, they're not bad things, but they're nothing in comparison to the one who has given them to me. Or, or maybe instead of having my mind set on the things above where Christ is, my mind is set on my work for God, my fruit. Uh, I look so carefully and stare so hard and, and think so long about what I'm doing that I reveal that my performance is my real treasure and the contemplation of it, and other people seeing it is what brings me joy and satisfaction. I don't keep my eyes fixed on Christ and my life hid with him in heaven because I can't tear my eyes away from the vision of my own goodness or lack thereof and my own reputation in the eyes of others. See, nothing, nothing, nothing we can fix our eyes on will cause us to bear righteous fruit except the Son of God. He's a sinner's our only hope. He's the sure promise of salvation and eternal happiness. He's the redeemer of the broken. He's the lover of the unlovely. All other things we can fix our minds on will fail us, will fade away, will turn to dust. And if if we never look away from them to look to Jesus, those things will weigh us down to hell. But looking to Jesus, to the life we have hidden in him, is the source of power, the source of hope, and the source of joy for the believer. Nothing we give away for the good of others, nothing we lay down as a costly sacrifice of love, nothing bad that happens to us while we're raised in him can touch the life that we have hidden in heaven. Can you imagine the power that that gives us to know that we can lose nothing of eternal value because all of our life, all of our treasure is hidden with Jesus Throughout history, it's caused Christians to sing hymns while being burned at the stake. It's caused Christians to bless their murderers. It's caused missionaries to give 
give up everyone they know and everything they have to travel to a strange land to share with others about this Savior. And we're, we're blessed to live in a time and a place that our greatest danger from living out our faith, it's usually not death and torture and imprisonment, but we are still called to make the costly sacrifices of love, to give away what we have to the poor, to suffer in faith, relying on the power that comes from fixing our minds on our heavenly Jesus. To wake up earlier than you want to so that you have a chance to read your Bible and pray. To hear the words of our Savior. To talk to our Father in heaven. Even if it costs me some extra sleep. To do what your wife or your children want instead of what you want. Because you can sacrifice the need to get your way on the altar of your love for your Savior that calls you to service, not to be served. We can act in love towards that difficult parent or that difficult adult child, even though they were the ones who hurt us, betrayed us, cost us so much, because we have a secure hope and a future hidden in heaven. No betrayal, even the worst betrayal of the closest loved one can change that. We can suffer the indignation and pain of knowing people think badly of us, refusing to gossip in the face of gossip, because we will love those who hate us with the joyful faithfulness of people whose inheritance can't be touched by anyone on earth. Things like these are the fruit of a person who has been raised and has a life with Christ in heaven and who is looking at Jesus, thinking about him and longing to be with him someday. See, people in Christ bear righteous fruit when God raises them with Christ by basking in the sun and as they weed out the garbage. People in Christ bear righteous fruit as they weed out the garbage. See, Paul, Paul has come to a very important part of this passage. Uh, even, even as Colossians, as a book, as a whole book, he's, he's going to get kind of concrete. He's told them why they're going to bear fruit. He's told them how the rules and regulations of their old life are worthless in bearing fruit. He's told them that if they've been raised with Christ, they are the possessors of a new life of fruitfulness. And so it's like like over the course of Colossians, uh, it's like they were a weedy patch uh, that only grew thorns and burrs and weeds, right? But a good gardener came along and declared, declared them not a weedy patch, but a beautiful and flourishing garden, and he committed himself to making it so. But then, then comes an important step, the destruction of all things, all the weeds, all the noxious growth that gets in the way of that good garden yielding an abundant harvest. And that's what verse 5 through 11 is talking about, the work of clearing the ground, the death of all that was previously on that patch of ground, and then the work of weeding out any and all desirable and damaging plants that pop up bearing toxic and poisonous fruit. The unrelenting work of keeping the garden a place where good fruit grows and bad fruit doesn't have a chance to flourish. Now, I I think what's one of the most astonishing things about this part of the passage is that it starts with a command, put to death. I mean, wait a minute, didn't Paul just say back in verse one, we have been raised, if, if, if we have been raised, something was done to us, done completely, and done by God? Doesn't it logically follow that what comes next is just waiting, well, for God to make us bear fruit? Can't I just sit back and wait for his spirit to move me? It's not the language that Paul uses. The language he shifts is to one of active commands, put to death. Put them all away. Do not lie. 
the reason for the shift in language is clear. Paul has gone from talking about what was done to us to what these Colossians and you and I are going to do as the response to being raised. And the idea assumed here, uh, it's, it's kind of assumed here, but Paul spells it out just really explicitly when he writes his letter to the Philippian church. He says, tells them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right? There is always, always, always an underlying assumption that God is the master gardener, that he, uh, that God did the first preeminent preordaining work in each of his people, a work that changed our hearts of stone, that loved the things of the earth, for a heart of flesh that loves him, loves his son. But then there is the command to work. Uh, in Colossians, in this passage, the command to work is stated in these ways. Put to death what is earthly in you, put them all away, and do not lie. Uh, Each of these commands is a command to do the work Christians are to be doing as evidence that they have been raised. Now, the work doesn't raise them, but it is the evidence of life, the evidence that someone has their mind set on the things, the person in heaven, Jesus. Put to death the earthly things, put them all away, and do not lie. Because these are commands, there is a responsibility to do these things. We each need to examine our lives. Ask ourselves, am I doing the work of putting to death earthly things, of putting them all away, and of not lying, of being truthful with the Christians in my life? Let's consider each of these these commands. First, put to death what is earthly. Uh, This is followed by examples of some of these earthly things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So what do each of these things have in common? Uh, Well, they're earthly. It's pretty straightforward. They're in, they're in the Colossians, and they're in us. Do you see that in the text? Put to death what is in, uh, earthly in you. These are the parts of us that are concerned with finding happiness, fulfillment, our greatest treasure here on earth. It's the longing after sexual fulfillment with someone other than your husband or wife. It's the greedy, grasping covetous, searching after more stuff that is idolatry. It's impurity, delighting in moral foulness because we love the feeling of being rebels, of being transgressive, of living our own lives. All of these things, these noxious earthly weeds, they're about finding my happiness here on earth and not in heaven where Jesus is. They're about substituting created things for the creator. Uh, Think with me about one of these earthly things, passion. Uh, See, my my passion can be for my spouse. My passion can be for my kids. Uh, My passion can be for my school or my career or my homemaking or my hobby. My passion can even be for good Christian doctrine. But all passion that is centered on earthly things for the sake of those earthly things is an earthly thing. And it has no home in heaven. It needs to be put to death if it keeps my mind away from where my new life is with Jesus in heaven. See, imagine two men with me. Uh, Both find out everything they can about a particular woman. One is her husband, and he does so because he's deeply in love with her and he delights in the sheer joy of knowing her. The other seeks to know her so he can woo her so she'll sleep with him or so she'll marry him, and he'll get her vast fortune. See, the first man 
was at one point raised to a new life of love for his beloved, and the other is dead to love for her and has a cold, dead passion for something other than the woman. See, that's, that is how even a passion for a good thing, for something like doctrine, even a passion for the doctrine of the gospel, if separated from a love for the heavenly Jesus that that doctrine is about, is the passion of a corpse. It has its beginning in death and it will find its end in death. It bears no fruit of life and Paul's command is to put it in the grave where it belongs. So that's the first command. Put to death what is earthly. Find your joy and happiness on earth. Second, the second command in this section, put them all away. It's very similar to the first command and is followed by a second list. And this list is a, it's a little different. Uh, the second list is the naturally occurring fruit of that first list, the life that comes out of desiring those earthly things. If I desire sexual uh, fil- fulfillment outside of marriage and I don't get it, I may bear the fruit of anger or I may bear the fruit of obscene talk. If I don't get the things that I covet, the riches or comforts I desire, I bear the fruit of anger or the fruit of maliciousness or the fruit of slander until I get it. Uh, but there's, there's other rotten fruit in that list, that second list that are a little harder to connect. Think with me about this example. Uh, you know, the first, from the first list, well, a passion for my wife or my kids may not be a bad thing, but when my passion for my family is of a purely earthly flavor, what kind of fruit am I gonna bear? Uh, without my mind being fixed on Jesus, I might slander those who I perceive as loving their families less than I do. Or, if I think something bad might happen to my family, I may become fearful, angry, and controlling, or act in wrath and malice towards those I consider a threat to my family and their happiness. Or consider this, what if I have a passion for helping people in need? That's definitely not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. Uh, But when that passion is purely of an earthly flavor, what kind of fruit will it bear? When that passion is separated from a love for my Savior in heaven, I may act pridefully towards those who help people in need less than I do. I might sink into self-satisfied complacency due to my status as a faithful servant. Or I may overlook deadly sins in my life because I'm doing so much to help other people. Uh, completely failing to realize that God is just as concerned about the motives of my heart when I'm helping people, uh, whether I'm doing what I do because of my love for Jesus, as he is with my outward actions. Earthly passions, earthly affections, will ultimately, ultimately produce earthly fruit that rightfully deserves God's wrath because these earthly affections are the result of sin, of rejecting the good, loving God of the universe in favor of trinkets, baubles, and sometimes even garbage. And the fruit of these earthly affections is rotten fruit that stinks in the face of God and thumbs our nose at the way that he has commanded us to live. Only, only once redeemed from life on earth for a life in heaven can our affections, our passions, lead to better fruit, lasting fruit. And so our passions that have their root in earthly things need to be put away. And the fruit that comes from them needs to be put away. And I'm not, it's not that Paul's advocating for leaving your spouse or giving up helping people or anything like that, right? Rather, he's telling us to do exactly what Jesus was advocating for when, when he said back in the Gospel of Luke, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, 
put affections, even good ones, in their rightful place in relation to Jesus. Paul is telling us that our love for Jesus is to displace, set aside all earthly love so that next to our love for him, they're like hate in comparison. They're like dead weeds compared to vibrant, growing plants. We are to put away the old earthly affections and their fruit, get rid of them, bury them in the ground to make way for new, better, heavenly affections and fruits. Put to death and put away. The third and the final command, do not lie to one another. It's the final piece of garbage in this passage that Christians are to weed out of their lives to make way for good fruit. The final thing Paul wants these Christians and us to do away with is the lying about ourselves that we do. Do you see that? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That last command is of particular importance to them as a community and to us as a community of believers. The line Paul is saying not to do is related to the, the old practices that these, Christians, uh, that these Christians have grouped themselves, presenting themselves to the world, right, uh, to the, and to each other. They thought things that they thought were important. Before they died to their old lives and were raised with Christ, the natural impulse of these Christians and us was to hide the fact that they were sexually immoral, impure, covetous idolaters. And most of us are the same way. Uh, we generally want others uh, to think we're good people. So we, we tend to lie about who we are, hide the truth of our fallen selves, tell others what we think they should know about us, And that is exactly what Paul is telling them not to do with each other. He's encouraging these Christians to be open and honest about their sin, their old self in light of their new self, Uh, which is, that new self is looking more and more like Jesus. Confess their sins to one another because their sin is part of an old life. It's now dead. It has no power over them or over us. I don't need to pretend to be better than I am. Because while that mattered when all I had and all I lived for was on earth, what I am now is dead to my sin, raised to life in Jesus, forgiven of all my rebellion against God, and credited for all of Jesus' perfect good deeds. Why would I lie about what I was, about who, what remains of who I was, when that is what is true of me now? And the other reason not to lie to one another is because we're all the same in Christ now. You see that in verse 11? Before Christ, it mattered how good you thought I was. It mattered that I was better than you or better than the average person or smarter or more civilized. It was how we kept the score when the game was winning here on earth. What our earthly, when our earthly life was all we had, it mattered whether we were Greek or Jewish or American or Indian or Mongolian or black or white or had a college degree or whatever. It mattered whether I was succeeding like a free Roman or failing like an enslaved barbarian. The way the world keeps score. Because how else was I or anyone else going to know if I'm winning? But now that our lives are raised in Jesus, now that we're not playing with monopoly money anymore, all of us in Christ have the same score. Infinite points. 
with infinity penalties forgiven. When that's your score in a game that really matters, why would, why would we lie to others, especially other Christians, about my score in an earthly game? It's like I'm entering my year-end review with my boss, and when they tell me that I'm getting a raise and a promotion, I go, oh yeah, just so you know, I beat my five-year-old in three out of game, five games at Candyland, just in case you want to take that into consideration, right? That's crazy. It's not only completely irrelevant, but it shows there's something wrong with my priorities and what I see as important to my life. See, in the same way, the way we need to think about our new selves as a united and transformed community, uh, it transcends all earthly categories. There are not white-collar and blue-collar Christians in our church, American and foreign Christians, rich and poor Christians, homeschooling and public schooling Christians, politically left and right Christians in our church but Christ is all and in all. Those other ways of keeping score, whether intellectually, culturally, financially, or politically, don't have any relevance to our deepest identity, who we are, because the most important thing is who lives inside of us. We are the church not because of shared politics or sociology, but because Jesus is all we have, and he is in all of us who are his church. So we no longer lie to each other by treating as important amongst ourselves all the other categories that the world treats as important. So as people with this new life, we prove this by talking to, making friends with, interacting with loving people who are different from us. A pray for Christians in your church you don't know very well using the insert from the program. Learn about and pray for the work that God is doing through the missionaries we support among other Christians in other nations, like at Root of Blessing Church in Mongolia. Mongolia. Pray for those Christians. Uh, Join a growth group that isn't made up of people who are just like you or in the same stage of life as you. Go to a faith training seminar where we learn how to be a church family together with those who are different from us in a very big way, our age. Uh, I know how hard this is. Trust me, I, I know. I too want the comfort of talking to people who are like me, that I know share my experiences, education, lifestyle choices, where conversation comes easy because of how much we have in common. But this comes from thinking that the ways, uh, that the things I have most in common with you are that I have young kids or I'm college educated or we like the same hobbies and not from correctly thinking that the thing I share with you is that the same Savior lives in us both, and that we're both going to heaven, where we'll sing praises to our God forever, together. Let us shed such a small earthly mentality in favor of a heavenly one. You and I have a new life in us if we've been raised with Christ. We will bear fruit if that is true, and Paul will continue in Colossians in this vein of telling us what that fruit is. What we need to remember is that people in Christ bear righteous fruit When God raises them with Christ, they bear righteous fruit by basking in the sun, and they bear righteous fruit as they weed out the garbage. Please pray with me. Dear God, help us with this. Help us to realize that we have no power on our own to do the things commanded in in these passages, that uh, this requires a work on your part. God, we, uh, we... 
Many of us tend to lean on our own efforts so much. We need the humbling and the confidence that comes from knowing that you do a mighty work in us. And so we pray that you would give us that confidence. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glory and the beauty of Christ so that we will desire to stare fixedly, to keep our minds fixed on him where he's waiting for us with open arms in heaven. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a desire to pull out the earthly affections in us, both the affections for what is blatantly evil and the affections that, have, that tend to displace you in our hearts, Lord. We know that, that our hearts are idol-making factories, and so we need your work, we need your Holy Spirit to do this in each of us, we pray. Lord, do this work through Christ in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.